Last Sunday was Pentecost, the day that we remember the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the disciples of Jesus. And we began looking at the biblical accounts of Pentecost that we find in Acts chapter 2, and we specifically last week looked at the power of Pentecost. How we see that power in the manifestations of the Holy Spirit through that rushing sound of wind, through the tongues of fire, and through the speaking in tongues. We looked at how Peter spoke to the crowd saying, hey, here's what's happening here. This is the fulfillment of God pouring out his Holy Spirit on his people. Well, today we're picking up in Peter's speech. We're looking at what he is saying to this crowd. So he has just told them, here's what's happening with this spirit thing. But now he's ready to get to the content, really the reason why he is standing up and speaking. And it shows us the purpose of the Holy Spirit's ministry. And that is to proclaim Jesus Christ. The Spirit came at Pentecost to fill God's people to proclaim Jesus as Lord. That is the purpose of Pentecost. And we see that today in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. You can find that also in your Bibles or your bulletins. Acts chapter, 20, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. This is the rest of Peter's speech. We'll get to the very end and we'll look at the last part later this month. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Let's begin. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit 
at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let us pray. Lord, we give thanks for the reading of your holy word. And we give thanks that you still speak. That just as the Spirit empowered and inspired Peter what to say that day on Pentecost, so you have preserved by your Spirit through your writings in the Scriptures your Word. And you speak even today through your Word. So God, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would speak through this Word. That you would use me in spite of my sin and weakness to faithfully proclaim your Word, proclaiming Jesus Christ is Lord. And that you would give us all ears to hear your word. That your spirit would go forth opening our hearts and our minds. That we would hear your word as your very own word as the truth of God. Help us to believe it. To live by it. To trust in it. God, work in us by your word and spirit for your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, as most weeks, I could included an outline in uh, the bulletin of the sermon today, and I give in there a big idea, and it has two words I want to draw your attention to. Because the big idea of our passage I want us to think through is that the Holy Spirit empowers believers to proclaim Jesus as Lord with conviction and compassion. Conviction and and compassion. And I choose these two words, not just because they both start with C's, and that's how preachers work, but because we should proclaim Jesus boldly without shying away from the truth. That is conviction. But we also must proclaim Jesus without writing people off, especially those people who might initially have objections and questions about our message. And so I want us to look at how Peter does this, particularly how the Spirit empowers Peter to do this, to proclaim Jesus as Lord with conviction and to compassionately anticipate objections from his audience. And so we start by looking at what he says. And so what's really interesting is this is the first ever public declaration that Jesus rose from the dead. First one. That most, if not all of these people in Jerusalem that day, knew about Jesus. But according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, only about 500 people saw Jesus risen from the dead before he ascended into heaven. And so now Peter is there in front of this big crowd, and he is faced with the difficult task of proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead without Jesus risen from the dead right next to him. So what evidence could Peter call upon? How could he boldly say something so unbelievable without the most important piece of evidence right beside him? Well, that's what the Holy Spirit is for. That's the purpose of Pentecost. The Spirit guided Peter to speak to this Jewish crowd in a way that they would understand. You see, the Holy Spirit knows the things of God. He knows everything in the Scriptures that He has inspired. And He knows the hearts of men and women as well, knowing what we need to hear. 
And so the Spirit empowered Peter to proclaim with conviction by pointing to four pieces of evidence that are very hard to explain on their own. But when you put these four pieces of evidence together, Peter explains how they point to the truth that Jesus rose from the dead and is truly the long-awaited Messiah. So Peter points to these four pieces of evidence. Point number one we see is that Jesus did mighty works during his earthly ministry. He's essentially asking, how do all of you explain that Jesus did all of these things if he wasn't truly sent by God? Yes, Peter knows that Jesus was eventually executed by the religious leaders, but before that, Jesus had done many miracles. That was common knowledge. And perhaps many of the people gathered that day in Jerusalem had seen Jesus do some of these works or had met someone who had been healed by Jesus. How would they explain that power? Didn't Jesus seem like a really good candidate to be the Messiah, at least up until he died on the cross? And so point one of his evidence is like, Jesus did a lot of great things, right? How do we explain that if he's just a dead man now, crucified, condemned. What do we make of all the good that he did? Then he points to a second piece of evidence that all of his hearers had just witnessed. How would they explain how Jesus' disciples were now speaking in all these different languages that they didn't know? We saw that last week, that that's kind of weird. How all of a sudden would a group of about this many people start speaking in 30 different languages that we didn't know beforehand and doing so fluently that you would need something to explain that? And so what could possibly explain that phenomenon, especially when it seemed so similar to how the Holy Spirit caused people to prophesy in the Old Testament? And if you thought about it, what did all of these people speaking in these different languages have in common? They were all followers of Jesus. So how do you explain that? How do you explain what you heard and saw this morning? That's his second piece of evidence. Jesus' mighty works and then this thing that happened that they all heard and saw. And so he considered those two miraculous phenomena, those, those things, but then he looks to Scripture to get two more pieces of evidence. His third piece of evidence comes from Psalm 16 that was written by King David. That's the part in the sermon text, the first part, verses 25 through 28, that's kind of sectioned off. It's a quote from Psalm 16. How would they explain this part in Psalm 16 where David says that, God, you will never let your Holy One see corruption? And by corruption, he means decomposition after death. And Peter's point is, well, David died. He was buried. His body decomposed. So what is Psalm 16 about? Because it can't be about David. That would mean the word of God is wrong. And the word cannot be wrong. So what is it speaking about? How would you explain this if not for perhaps a descendant of David, the Messiah himself, who was not able to be killed and stay dead, but rose again from the dead incorruptible? 
That sure seems like a good explanation. And so that's his third piece of evidence. How would you explain Psalm 16? And then the last piece of evidence he points to is Psalm 110. That's what we see in verses 34 and 35, also written by David. Jesus himself had referenced this part of Psalm 110 about two months earlier. He asked the religious leaders, who is David talking about in Psalm 110? See, David mentions that the Lord, that is God, said to his Lord, which is someone else, I guess, that his enemies would become a footstool for his feet. And so we've got three persons there. We've got the Lord, God, some other Lord of David's, and David. And Jesus is saying to them, who is this Lord who is distinct yet reigning with God Almighty, whom David worships and whose enemies will all be put under his feet. Who is that? Boy, it sure seems like if there was a Messiah who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven to the right hand of God, waiting for his enemies to be put under his feet, seems like a likely candidate, right? Peter says, I can explain that verse. Can you? Notice how Peter goes through these four points of evidence. He does so with great conviction. Peter is not waffling on his points. He states them clearly and with boldness. He knows the truth and he declares the truth in such a way that his audience has to sit there and consider what it is he is saying. Consider again that this is Simon Peter, an untrained fisherman from Galilee speaking to this large crowd of devout Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire who've gathered in Jerusalem, that he is proclaiming the breaking news about the most important event in history. And the only way he can do it is because the Holy Spirit empowered him to speak with such conviction. So what can we learn from Peter's conviction here? Well, our situation is very different. From Peter's, in a sense. We are not explaining a new thing to a Jewish audience. We are explaining an ancient thing to a diverse audience. An audience, many of whom have heard of Jesus and Christianity and already have opinions about this Jesus. We also cannot point to miraculous phenomenon that just happened among us, like Peter could. We cannot assume that people are so interested in the Bible that they're like, man, I guess I can't explain verse 1 of Psalm 110. Not a lot of those people out there today really worried about how to explain that verse. And so things are different for us. And yet our message remains the same. That believers today are still witnessing to the truth that Jesus rose from the dead and he is Lord of all the earth. And thankfully, we have the same Holy Spirit who empowers us to proclaim Jesus as Lord with conviction. We just need different pieces of evidence, I guess, because we have a different audience and we're in a different time, but we are pointing to the same truth. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit guides us and empowers us to consider the scriptures and think about what are ways we can share this truth, this breaking news in ways that people need to consider. And so I want us to to think about one piece of evidence today. We don't have time to go through all 30 of them. Just one piece today is fine. And that is this. 
Why have so many rational people throughout the history of the world believed in the resurrection of Jesus? We may like to watch superhero movies about Spider-Man and Captain America and all these guys. We may love to imagine magical powers. But the vast majority of the world understands that supernatural and miraculous things don't happen. They don't happen normally. They're unusual. We don't expect them to happen. And this is not a modern belief. Ancient people understood this too. Yes, they may have believed that the forces of nature were powered by gods and supernatural beings, but they believed that dead people stayed dead. That was a really easy message for them to learn. So why have so many people throughout history believed that Jesus rose from the dead? Why would they believe something so unbelievable? See, even historians who don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, they have to admit that at some point in history, shortly after Jesus lived, people began to believe that he rose from the dead. How do you explain people believing that? Why would so many people believe such a ridiculous thing? And why would they believe it so strongly that they'd be willing to die for that belief instead of deny that belief? Well, I think a really good explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. That seems to make sense of that. Instead of it being a hoax, instead of it being a fairy tale that people are willing to die for, we may like superheroes a lot. I'm not willing to die for Spider-Man. Nope, not going to happen. For Jesus, though. And so we can pray for the Spirit to give us conviction to speak the truth, as well as pray for wisdom, asking God, how can I best convey this truth to my friends, my family, and my neighbors? We can ask the Lord to give us conviction because often we lack conviction. We fear offending others more than we fear dishonoring Jesus. We feel the need to start every conversation about Jesus with, sorry to bother you, but, like we're a telemarketer. But we do have good news to share. And if we truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then we should honor Him by confidently telling others that He is the Lord of all. And we should humbly ask the Spirit to empower us to wisely speak those things, to share them with conviction in ways that our audience can understand. But the thing is, we need more than conviction. Conviction is hugely important, but we need more. We also need compassion when we proclaim Jesus. Because we need to know that this is kind of a crazy thing to believe about Jesus. And so we need to be compassionate with those who struggle to grasp that truth. See, even though Peter is preaching with great boldness and conviction, he does not have a condescending attitude towards his audience. He's not saying, how dare you not believe what I'm saying? No. He doesn't write them off as moral or intellectual weaklings. He exhibits compassion while still standing firm in the truth. See, conviction does not mean that we have to compromise when it comes to compassion. We do not have to compromise what we are convicted about in order to be compassionate. 
Being compassionate is simply understanding where someone has come from. Why they not might listen to you right away. You don't have to soften the truth. You don't have to excuse people's sin. You just understand and appreciate where people are coming from. And that's exactly what Peter is doing. Peter builds into his message compassionate answers to objections he knows he's going to get. He doesn't fully answer those objections. He doesn't have time to answer every single objection, but he builds in the answers to show he, is, he knows what they're going to say. I know where you're going to get hung up on this. And I want to show us three objections he anticipates. The first and most obvious objection that Peter anticipates is a reaction of confusion. And you could sum up people who have this objection by saying, where is he? Then a big objection to Peter's message is like, all right, Jesus rose from the dead. Prove it. Where's he at? Peter knows to expect this, that if Jesus really rose from the dead, then where is Jesus? If he's really the Messiah, why is he not walking to the throne in Israel? Why is he not gathering his army? Why is Simon Peter talking to us instead of Jesus? If Jesus is alive right now, what, what's he? why isn't he here? So Peter addresses this confusion in verse 33. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Peter is saying that Jesus did take the throne, but the throne is not in Jerusalem. It's in heaven at the right hand of God. That his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom for the time being. And Peter understands better than they even do how hard it is to believe in a spiritual kingdom. Him and his fellow disciples really struggled with that idea all throughout the ministry. And so he knows how confused they could be. He uses Psalm 110 to show Jesus had to go to heaven in order to pour out the Holy Spirit. You just saw the Holy Spirit. So he is there. He has poured out the Spirit. He is trying to help answer the confusion about where Jesus is. And so he anticipates that objection, those who might be confused. That's the first way he does this. A second and perhaps more common objection is the reaction of indifference. You could sum up that objection with the question, who cares? Who really cares? You can imagine a Jewish man in Jerusalem that day hearing Peter talk. You're like, right, that's a bunch of nonsense. Goodbye. And just walking away. He'd go back to celebrating Pentecost the way he wanted to. And then he'd go home and live his normal life. That this Jesus hysteria is fine for those zealots over there. But life's hard enough without worrying about people coming back from the dead. But Peter tries to gently make clear why this message matters for all people. Again, it's in Psalm 110. This quote that he gives us about the enemies becoming a footstool at Jesus' feet. He's trying to get them to think about this idea that consider a peasant farmer who kept to himself and didn't follow the news. Let's say he lives in Greene County, you know? Just lived out there and just lived out and didn't really care about anything else. Didn't watch the news. And one day a passing traveler came and told him, there's a new king over the land. Peasant farmer didn't care. I don't have no king. I live out here all by myself. Well, a king expects taxes from you. <sighs> taxes. I'm not paying any taxes. This is my land. This is my stuff. 
That proud, independent farmer would be in for a rude awakening when the new king showed up demanding taxes with the rightful authority over that peasant farmer. In the same way, Peter is trying to show this Jewish audience that Jesus is the rightful king of the world and that all who rebel against him will be his enemies under his feet. Peter understands that people might be indifferent to this message, and so he's compassionately warning them, giving them little clues that we don't want to be this king's enemies. The third and most intense objection that Peter anticipates is a defensive reaction. And so we've seen confusion, indifference, but now defensiveness. You could sum it up with the question, who, me? Because Peter tells his audience twice in this message, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter lays the blame for Jesus' death at the feet of his audience. And to be fair, it had been less than two months since Jesus was crucified in that city. And so it was possible that some who conspired to have him killed or some of the people who shouted crucify him that day, that they may have been there right then as Peter was speaking. But there were certainly plenty of people who weren't there, who were now there at Pentecost. People who weren't directly responsible. What about them, Peter? Well, Peter anticipates his objection by pointing to the real reason Jesus was killed. He says, yes, you crucified him by the wicked schemes of men, but he also shows that it was the definite plan of God. That it was God's plan to put Jesus to death. Do you notice that Peter does not go on to fully explain this plan? To explain how all of it works? He doesn't say any of that. It's kind of interesting when you look at what he is saying here. But he lays clues that if God planned for Jesus to die, then he had to die for a reason. And if we're responsible, then that reason must be sin. That he died because all mankind is guilty of sin. And Peter is pointing the finger not just at those who conspired to have him killed, but those whose sin sent him to the cross. And he's doing it compassionately. He is pointing a finger at them but he's doing it so that they might genuinely be convicted and turn to Jesus. Now, Peter, I have to say, pretty good job. First sermon. I know from experience, first sermons, not great. Usually bad. You know, you you record them, and the best thing to do is delete the recording. Just pretend like it never happened, and just move on. You're nervous. You're inexperienced. You stumble over your words. You lose your place in your notes. It takes a lot of practice to feel comfortable preaching. Yet here's Simon Peter, fisherman from Galilee, standing before a large crowd of fellow Jews, preaching the first ever sermon about the risen Jesus and doing so with equal measure, conviction, and compassion. How do you explain that? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit made it possible. The Spirit empowered Peter to preach such a message because the Spirit was sent by Jesus to make Jesus known. The purpose of Pentecost was for Jesus to fill all His people with the Holy Spirit so that all His people could proclaim Jesus to all His people. 
Not all of us are going to be called to stand up before a large crowd or even at a pulpit like this, but we are all called to be witnesses. We are all called to proclaim Jesus. So do not be afraid to testify about Jesus. The Spirit is with you. Jesus sent the Spirit to empower you for that very purpose. The Spirit did not come to draw attention to Himself. He came to draw attention to this Jesus. I like how Peter says that three times in there. This Jesus. We are all about this Jesus. That as Christians, that's who we are about. And we are to talk about this Jesus. And yes, some people will be confused by the gospel. Some people will be indifferent to our message. Some people will be offended and defensive about their sin. But what we do is we keep proclaiming this Jesus. Knowing that we have been filled with the Holy Spirit who strengthens us with conviction for the truth and compassion for those who don't know Jesus. And so may the Spirit empower us to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. In His name, Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You that You have given us a great message to share. Lord, it is easy to talk about the truth. It's hard to come up with reasons to tell people to believe in lies. But when it comes to the truth, it's easy to just state what it is. Lord, give us conviction about the truth of Jesus. Give us compassion for those who don't know Him. Help us to be patient in sharing the good news of the Gospel while urgently calling for repentance. I pray, Lord, that for any here today who do not know this Jesus as Lord, that You would open their hearts to believe in You. That You, O God, would give them a sense of their sinfulness and that they can repent and turn to Christ who can take away all of their guilt and shame and give them the promise of new life and eternal life in Him. Lord, help us to be people who witness to Jesus. Spirit, always be with us to strengthen us. May we delight in the power that we have been given in that way. And may we delight in our Lord, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.